This is TCA Where We Meet uh, Radio Hour. Um, today I'm here with Juanita uh, Juanita Lavadi, um, and we're gonna have a conversation. And before we get into that, I'm gonna just give a rundown of the um, weather uh, for today. We have a 20% chance and a 30 per- or or 30% chance of a uh, slight chance of rain or snow showers. Um, a 30% chance tonight of uh, rain or snow. And then on Tuesday, a mostly sunny day. Tuesday night, a partly cloudy day with a low of 33. Wednesday, a mostly cloudy with uh, a chance of sh- showers with a high 53. And Wednesday night with a 50% chance of sh- showers with a low of 34. Um, yes, we're here with Juanita Lavadi where we're going to have a conversation. Um, I'm going to give a brief introduction of Juanita and then... Um, go into just the the interview. So um, today we are here with Juanita Lavadi, a historian and artist of northern New Mexico. Some of Juanita's recent work is about Comancheros. um, And we're here to talk about Juanita's work and and learn a little bit more about the Comancheros. I'll give a brief history of the Comancheros to contextualize um, who we're speaking about when we reference um, the Comancheros. So, Comancheros were traders from central and northern New Mexico during the late 18th and 19th century. They would trade all over the southwest, loading their wagons and trading with the Great Plain tribes. One tribe in particular they would trade with were the Comanches, which is where they, uh, the Comanchetos get their name from. By the, 19, by the 1850s and the 60s, and 60s, the Comanchetos trade was considered illegal under American law, and the U.S. Army eventually put an end to this trade. Um, Juanita... Is there anything you would like to uh, add to this brief portrait I gave of the Comancheros that can help our listeners understand the conversation we are about to have? Yeah, okay. Um, well, <clears throat> the Comancheria was the, ter- the territory of the Comanche tribe, and uh, that really created a barrier between the United States, the early United States, and the colonies here. Also, too, it prevented a lot from the French coming in from Louisiana. And um, the, Me- the Mexican uh, connection coming up from the south was uh, also very much affected by the Comanches. You know, they were formidable with their horses. And uh, so uh, they were probably in control of a vast amount of land. Like I said, it was called the Comancheria. And uh, so to do business, leave you know, this mountain area and go out past the Llano Estacado and the flatlands, <clears throat> going into West Texas and West uh, Oklahoma, um, you're more than likely going to be dealing with doing business with the Comanches. And the 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 the, the relationship between the Comanches and the Comancheros, how would you describe it? Uh, business. Business. <laughs> business. Yeah. Um, the commodities that were available at the, that time were mostly, well, commodities for survival, which was like the, what it was called the efectos del país, you know, the produce from the land here, which also included, I mean, it was beyond the agricultural, like pumpkins, apples, melons, the dried produce, things that were prepared by the families, <clears throat> but also um, other, other effects that may have come up through the Camino Real. So there were some things like cloth, Velvet, um, uh, brocades, taffeta, silks. Um, all these were commodities. And a lot of this, probably, a lot of fine commodities were probably 
as they came up here, they probably dedicated to the church, but not always, because doing trade with the Comanches was able to, it was, it was uh, survival. It was one thing it gave permission to hunt out there in the flatlands. <clears throat> but also, too, um, you know, the Comanches were known for their horses, and they had a pretty lively uh, horse trading business, but also, too, the Comanches had a, a very <clears throat> strong slave business. A lot of the slaves they brought that uh, they brought were some of the captives from Mexico, but they were also intertribal people, and of course, you know, people that were kidnapped. I mean, there's a lot of stories and songs in Ditas, and you know, of the, those kind of relationships. But the big, the big event, the trade fairs, were called cambalaches, and uh, so a lot of things happened at trade fairs. A lot of inter intercultural exchanges, not only an exchange of material wealth, but exchange maybe if there's a compadrasco, you know, social relationships, um, big events, <clears throat> big events during those days, the 1700s and the 1800s. And what was your fir first exposure uh, to the Comancheros? Um, well, my dad was a storyteller, and uh, it was kind of peripheral from my dad because uh, from my dad's family, it was more uh, sheep herding. So, yeah. you know, that's up in the mountains, not so much in the plains. <clears throat> but when I started studying, uh, doing my work with textiles, I was working with uh, Guadalupe Bacavan. And uh, she would tell stories of uh, some of the exchanges and uh, uh, the use of some of the cloths that uh, I was learning about, the bayeta, sabania, and of course there was the hergas. And that actually, the hergas, the story about the hergas led to the, the work that I'm doing now. But I also have to credit Cleofas Vigil from San Cristobal with his indita that he would sing about uh, the uh, fate of a young comanchero who was an excellent a horseman and lancero. He worked with the lance very well, but in the middle of the stampede, his horse tripped and he fell on his lance. So this song, it's quite long. It's a commemoration of uh, what he would say when he, because he was left there. You know, he was buried there in the plains. So it's kind of like the last will that he left for his friends and his family. So it's, it's a kind of a dirge, uh, you know, a very sad song. So that kind of piqued my interest. And then the final thing was the, um, that kind of brought this to a head was the, um, uh, <clears throat> with, from my research, with the block plaid of the, the Hergas, and it's a block plaid, and you see it commercially with work shirts, those big, you know, black and white or black and red or black and navy blue, yeah. and that is called the buffalo plaid. And at one point I was reading with my research and someone was crediting it, credit, crediting the block plaid to the Scottish people. And I'm thinking, no, no, the buffalo plaid is called the buffalo plaid because of the ciboleros, the Spanish buffalo hunters. But in reality, that block, block plaid you'll find everywhere. I mean, India, you'll see some of the cloths. Gingham is a very tiny, it's the same structure as the block plaid made of wool, but it's much finer in tiny little squares. But the block plaid is usually about an inch, a square inch, more or less. It's it's a real definite block <laughs> making the plaid. <laughs> that's uh well it's interesting, I think, talking about the that I feel like that's also plays into like the um in some ways, like the um cultural exchange you're talking about that happens at the uh, the, the trade fairs that um I don't know, that that just kind of I think is very the Comancheros, at least from my understanding, they're kind of this um I guess 
would you say that they had a lot of influence for um both they influenced both the Comanches and also were influenced by the Comanches? Would you say that? Well, there was a lot of influence happening. You know, I think there was well, exchange of ver- words for one thing, communication when you're communicating business, you're doing it is not just sign language, you're dealing with language. And um also a sense of aesthetics. Because um, it's, well, you know, you, you think about the buffalo plaid and the continuity of that. You know, the black polo, the buffalo plaid is a real popular shirt with the, uh, the cholos and the cholas. You know, there was an exhibit in 2017 at the Hispanic Cultural Center on chulas, the pachucas. Yeah. And that was, that's, you know, it's, it's just a very popular shirt, even to this day, not necessarily because somebody is Chola, but it's just a very popular work shirt, the buffalo plaid work shirt. But um, for someone to wear it as a kind of a cultural pride, they don't know the connection of that shirt that that shirt makes to northern New Mexico back, what, um, 300 years ago. Yeah. In, in your uh, in your current project um, about the ciboleros and the comancheros, um, you address some of the min- misconceptions that people have of the comancheros. Uh, could you describe some of these misconceptions? Well, <clears throat> if you were looking on fa- on uh, YouTube, you know, for music and trying to find some kind of music on the comancheros, you know, you you see these you, you see these you hear these mus- musicians singing songs about these bandoleros and you know people that were considered like you know out of the lo- out, outlaws well that may have been something that may have happened after the um, Santa Fe Trail opened up because a lot of things changed and so the law wasn't even Spanish anymore it was English so there was a lot of transitions at that time it was volatile but really the history of the Comancheros goes way back into the early 1700s where the survival of a village or a community would depend very much on these, on the comancheros and the ciboleros, the ciboleros being the hunters. The comancheros, they were usually hand in hand. But um, so when there was an expedition that would start out from this area, from around, you know, northern New Mexico, um, it would be after the harvest. And a lot of work. I mean, right now we're in springtime, and, and for those people who do their jardines, and you know, this is a busy time, but it's also harvest is the closure of this. So a lot of the commodities that were, that were from the harvest, the efectos del país, um, were gathered for, the, for the, um, the, well, the well-being of the family during winter season. But a good portion of this was also set aside. Whatever the community had to contribute to be utilized by these expeditions set out by the Comancheros and the Ciboleros because they were going to be doing trade. And so material objects that are not available, except um, it was a, uh, I think the planes really did anticipate a lot of the goods bring, being brought in by the Comancheros. Um, you know, dried pumpkin, dried apples, dried ciruela, uh, you know, the fruits, uh, corn, um, because they were nomads. And so agricultural goods were something that were, that were appreciated in return, you know, having some buffalo, uh, access to buffalo, or having trades, bringing back maybe somebody, a missing relative that was part of, uh, caught up in the slave trade, bringing them back. Um, also bringing captives, but that was usually uh, in the trade fairs. But um, so my, uh, what I started with this, because I'm a fiber artist, was looking at 
the shirts because this this the shirts was my stepping stone into this project and um a good shirt is a good shirt you know you have a good shirt that's going to wear well whether it's uh, a work shirt that might protect you during a blizzard an unexpected blizzard in the early um the early autumn out there in the plains or uh, just a shirt that had you know nice detailing and you know very easily um, you know catch somebody's eye so there were many things that were used for trade and the shirt apparel is only one part of it that that segues uh, wonderfully into our next question of um some of your work in in, in in one of your current projects, the installation for 516 Art, um, focuses on the shirts worn by the Comancheros and the Ciboleros. Um, What story is told in these shirts? Oh, <laughs> I have to say, first of all, <clears throat> that exhibit was based on four shirts that I made using traditional uh, patterns. You know, there, there's no copyright on these. These patterns are universally um, available, basically like pulling something off a loom. So it'd be rectangular pieces. It's just the proportions of the cut. But um, these shirts were part of what I produced, but also while I was making them, I had, was creating a, an imaginary persona within the stories. And so the first story is about, uh, the first shirt is started with two bags of wool. I spun more than a mile of yarn to weave that shirt, to make, to make the cloth, that yarn into cloth, and then to sew, stitch it with the same yarn. And in my head, this was the young man who was going out to hunt buffalo with the expedition. And there's little you know, nuances in the story that goes into that. The second persona that I created was also kind of a work shirt that was more utilitarian than fancy or trader shirt. Um, and uh, this one, I, the stories of the conversos is something that, that's... Uh, always been a, a theme running through through uh, many of the familial stories here in northern New Mexico. You see a lot of artists that are that are doing that work uh, to include, you know, the 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 um, conversos, the um, crypto Jews. And so this second persona was someone who the family had to leave Spain under duress, you know, because of the uh, the uh, prejudice of the Christians you know, in terms of reclaiming Spain and denouncing anyone who is not Christian and imposing uh, very rigid behavioral rules that you would have to do in society. The third person, uh, which is each shirt was later on in history, so the third person starts coming into um, <clears throat> the early 1700s, and uh, I, I think I was inspired a little bit by the story of Padre Martinez, who... who um, you know, he grew up on, on the hacienda there in uh, Lower Ranchitos and uh, was sent for higher education to the monasteries in Mexico, which would have been, could have been, um, um, could have been Durango was uh, one of the early settlements, could have been all the way down to Mexico City. But this is someone who was a little bit on the privileged uh, side of the societal uh, hierarchy. But his story also has to do with living on the land with the people that were working in the haciendas. You know, there's the patron, there's the family. The, and there was always a woman who was pretty much in charge of household, the jefa. And uh, the household included everyone, 
you know, everyone had to work, including children. Every children had their chores right, that they were expected to to uh, to do. And uh, along with that was the criadas, the slaves, the indigenous slaves that were purchased at the cambalaches, the trade fairs. And so um, I tried to address this with this third persona. And the fourth one was kind of fun to do because this was more free form in terms of what was going on in society. It was a very volatile time. So this third person was a very big man. He had an ancestry of work of uh, his family businesses, but his great-grandmother was from New Orleans. She was a free black woman. And she married a man who came down from Canada, down the Ohio and Mississippi River, maybe married, but she teamed up with him. And so he was a Métis, which is a French for mestizo. Anisinabi tribe or whatever the tribe would be. But, you know, get using this couple as, as a story also of all of the interactions and, the, you know, the, 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 the interactions, the social interactions that were happening. Because, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> New Mexico was not, it was isolated, but it really wasn't that isolated. Yeah. I mean, we had French people coming here. There were African people coming here. Um, the uh, English... And, of course, coming from, from Mexico, you know, the Spanish, and all the intertribal uh, relationships. So the mestizaje has a large part to do with that. So this third person is definitely a mix <clears throat> with a lot of gumption to be able to continue the dying uh, trade of being a comanchero. So this guy was a charmer. And so I have that little story that goes with but this installation is a multimedia installation, and books are kind of fun to work with in the stories because I did compile small books for each. But most people are not going to take the time to sit down and read a book, but it's available. The story is available because that's what went into the creation of the uh, different, uh, different elements of this installation. Thank you for sharing about that wonderful installation, um, Juanita. And that's maybe we can circle back uh, near sure. the end to to talk more about you know your plans for for the future for it. Sure. Um, traditionally, how has the history of the Comancheros been passed on? Oh, I think it's you know kind of mythical because um, there are families there are families here in Taos that do have a connection to the Ciboleros and Comancheros. But um, it, it's just one small part of the history. And because of the myth of the Comancheros being, you know, these uh, vagabonds, you know, who are doing all these, you know, hustlers, you know, um, <clears throat> it, it just was something that that's just some, somehow kind of fell by the wayside, you know, the connections. Because it, it really did take some digging for me to get information. Um, of course, uh, one the first source was um, there's a lot of books that are written, and probably the most quoted source is, is the first person account of commerce on the prairie by Josiah Gregg, and that was interesting. But one thing that he is missing in some of his assumptions of his when he describes the people here in northern New Mexico, is that he was a white man coming in. I don't think he was ever invited to any homestead to eat with the family and realize the, the social interaction. So uh, he probably never saw any social interaction connected with uh, the women of the household. And they played a very important part in the survival of our culture. So <clears throat> it's just interesting, but he does do very good descriptions of the apparel. 
um, there's another book that I also used, which was Los, Los Paisanos by Oka Jones, and it came out of the Oklahoma University. And his research was based more on the colonists, the people who came and the, the, what they had to do. You know, when they left Spain, some of them, as I said, you know, it was leave or die. And uh, so when they're coming with their families, you know, some of the impositions, some of the rules and regulations that they had to abide by, including coming up to this area, committing themselves to living on the land within a certain amount of years, being able to, to um, say, levantar, to build a structure of a home within the code of the Spanish, uh, the, the, the uh, permisos. <clears throat> and and being and having to do that if they were going to stay here because if they didn't comply with that then they had to go back to square one again so there was a lot of of, of uh, the survival of the colonists had a lot of different facets and then the one that was interesting for the Comanches was the Empire of the Summer Moon which was written by S.C. S. Gwynn and uh, <clears throat> it's a lot about Quana Parker, which is in the late 18th, the tail end of the of the Comanches. But for these three books, kind of gave me a little bit of grounding to add meat to also the stories that I'd heard because um, you hear stories and then you see things on media, and it, it's just a mix. So I had to kind of put these things together in my head, and I had this idea for a long time of doing this installation. So the opportunity came up 2020, and I said, "Yeah, I'll do it." I think that that's a nice segue into um, shifting more into your your personal um, like journey as an artist and historian. Um, I want to ask you this question: How does imagination inform your work? <laughs> it's key. <laughs> I I I said this. Uh, I've said this before. I am not a scholar. I am an artist, a fiber, and a graphic artist with a big imagination, and I love stories. So. Uh, I, I could say I'm a storyteller, but there's some wonderful storytellers around, but it's just a combination. And um, my childhood experiences with my dad were really crucial for me. Um, he left the ranch. He was the fourth son, a family of 17. Not all the children, of course, survived with the infant mortality rates at those days. But um, he left the mountains when he was 19 to start first grade. And, of course, you know, he, he was with the interest and the desire to acquire learning. He, he uh, graduated from McCurdy and got a scholarship to go to university in Nebraska, and he got his bachelor's there. And, but because he grew up in the mountains herding sheep, you know, he had a lot of stories to tell. But I think it's that, that uh, there's a romanticism of, of being able to, you know, you're watching your sheep and there's, there's beautiful mountains and you're looking at different things, maybe the clouds in the sky and the imagination, you know, the stories. And so I do this a lot with my dad. We would drive or just be, you know, whatever we would be doing, but we'd see something and we'd kind of create our own images from that, you know, prompted by that, whatever it was that prompted it. But uh, also, too, kind of creating stories. So I grew up with a good nurture of using imagination. How, do, how, does, how is story and imagination important for you when it comes to the historical narratives of northern New Mexico? Um, I think we have to recognize who we are internally because there's so much that 
has become stereotypical. You know, is, uh, a good example, you know, we, what, what do we eat nowadays? Oh, a lot of people talk about burritos and tacos. We didn't have burritos and tacos here in Taos. It was a and, the A&W drive-in. Yeah, that was what brought in the burritos. No, we had, we had other foods that we would eat, you know, using papas, you know, a lot of, a lot of caldos and, and uh, guisados. And uh, uh, the tortillas, you know, um, that was the corn tortillas and flour tortillas. But there were some foods that, you know, people think, oh, you know, this is northern New Mexico. In reality, they're not. You know, they are, there's a connection with, you know, coming from uh, the commerce, commercialization. <clears throat> but it may not necessarily be traditional northern New Mexico, but it sure is traditional right now. I mean, you know, if you're talking about contemporary food. You know, I can mention some places here that have some incredible burritos that, you know, originally they weren't even on the menu. They're so popular that now they are on the menu. But, um, yeah, it's, there's, there's a, has to be a recognition of the survival of the ancestors coming in, and some of them under duress. They had no choice. And um, you know, and, and living and surviving and utilizing every resource that is available. So it's like my grandmother used to say, "Sabemos cómo ser buen pobres." You know, we might be poor, but we know how to survive well. Yeah, I, I think this is kind of this relates to a, a question I have for you: is um, for the youth that want to know more of their history, how would you recommend them to learn more about? Uh, the history of northern New Mexico? Ask questions. And a lot of kids have cell phones. Um, there's protocols to recording in, you know, uh, conversations. But if it's family and you have an elder and there's a story that you might want to hear, or um, you have to give leeway because sometimes a story may not be what you're going to end up with, your question. Uh, because maybe something prompts a memory that takes it off into another direction. But um, just have the patience to sit down and listen and, and maybe record on your cell phone if you can. Um, it's, it's amazing little gestures uh, that make such a difference years down the line. And an example I will give you is Thanksgiving. I mean, uh, Thanksgiving was the feast and, of course, watching TV, uh, the games. But while my dad and my grandpa were watching uh, the games on, on TV, we got into this habit of taking out these baskets of old photographs, and we'd sit there with my grandmother, and whatever she remembered about the photograph, my sister and I would write in pencil <laughs> so that the ink wouldn't bleed through the photograph. But we would write whatever information she gave. And boy, these days, I am so glad we did that, because some of that info who would I go to now? Yeah. But she was available then, and it was just something that we did, and uh, it was a good thing. And I, I also have to add this real quick, because my grandfather was a photographer, and there are a lot of family photographs that he took with family, and I see them being posted on Facebook, <clears throat> and they never mention my grandfather, but he was the photographer. Yeah. Is, mm. is it, do, you, do you know if there's a way to, um, I don't know, get that credit there so people... No, no, that well, it isn't. just like I'm doing right now, I'm just telling people, remember who the photographer was. And that's, that's another thing about giving, giving credit where credit is due. Because 
um, there's a lot of things that I've learned from my father, from Guadalupe Bacavan, from Cleofas Vigil, from, you know, from my grandmother, from my aunts, you know, just different people who taught me different things. But I think it's important to recognize that you didn't learn everything just because you had the power to learn it. Somebody helped you on the way. And it's good to give that kind of recognition. Of course. Yeah. It's recognition is um, totally deserved um, or justly deserved, I believe. Um, Juanita, what drives you to continue the work in uh, continuing the conversation and uh, preserving, I guess, the history of northern New Mexico? Querencia. <laughs> Querencia. It, I, I love my, my family, my, uh, my culture. Uh, you know, you can't. You can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. Nevertheless, the richness and the diversity of the family is really critical. And, um, you know, just give credit there. And um, um, when I was invited to do this, this project with the Comancheros, there were other people, too, as well. Oh, actually, I didn't realize at the time, but they were going to make the selection of who was going to actually exhibit at 516 Arts in Albuquerque. And so they would ask different people, you know, well, who's your audience? Who's your audience? And some people would say, oh, the, the Museum of Art or, you know, such and such a gallery or, or such and such an art fair. And so when they asked me, well, who's your audience? And I said, the senior centers of Costilla, Osarco, <laughs> and Sapeo, because I really, I've learned so much from my elders that I want to put this back there. And I am an elder, but... Um, they, I think just the appreciation. I think sometimes elders don't realize, you know, what what they are. And I'm going to use Tomas Atencio's phrase, okay. Oro del Barrio, the gold of the neighborhood. El Oro del Barrio. And that's, that's you know, so that's my carencia. You know, I, I, the work that I do, I try to give back to <clears throat> my family, my culture, and also, too, to, you know, recognition of, of the earth and all that, you know, the resources and blessings we've received from the earth. So that's my focus. Yeah. Thank you, Juanita, for, for sharing that or, and sharing all these wonderful stories. Um, we're, we're rounding up here for a little bit, but um, Juanita, you're working on so much. Um, what is something you're currently working on that you uh, would like to share with us? Well, <clears throat> I'm continuing with my with my painting and with my fiber work, but I received a grant to uh, take this project of the Comancheros and um, the Ciboleros and Comancheros uh, to um, be able to take it, throw the whole thing into my car. It fits in my car and it doesn't be easy enough to ship, but I am now able to take it anywhere, indoors or out. So I'm scheduling installation presentations and. In, uh, Santa Fe County, Rio Riba County, and Taos County. And I would like to take it to Mora and, Las, <clears throat> and uh, Las Vegas because they're on the edge of the plains. So I would imagine in Mora and in Las Vegas, you know, for uh, heritage families from those areas, they really do have some more vivid stories of the Ciboleros and Comancheros. As I said, you know, we were sheep herders, my family. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a... That's, uh... I, I can't wait to hear more about it and to see, um, you know, where this all goes. It sounds like a, a fun project to be working on. Um, it, is there anything else you would like to share with us, Juanita? Um, well, there are a lot of artists <clears throat> that are doing work here that uh, I don't think they really understand how valuable the work that they, you know, that they have, that they do, that they produce. 
it's a um, it's a crazy time right now in terms of museums. Museums are running out of storage space. A lot of their budgets go into uh, <clears throat> into the storage um, necessities, and that's gotten to be very technical. And so, really, the best place for a museum is in your heart and in your home. Yeah. Well, Juanita, thank you for um, joining us this morning for this wonderful conversation. Um, where can people find more information about the work you're doing and, and um, where you're at? Um, I'm kind of a little bit reclusive. <laughs> I don't put myself out there. I guess where I put more um, comments is on my Facebook post, but um, I don't know. I mean, just sharing and me being with friends and connecting with the friends and letting the word out. I'll probably have something, some flyers out for sure with the schools and the senior centers too. Well, um, anyone looking out for uh, Juanita's work, please uh, just stay tuned and, and follow her on Facebook. Um, thank you again for joining us, Juanita. Um, we're, uh, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll uh, stop here. We're gonna, I'm going to play some music and um, yeah, thank you again. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you to uh, Juanita Lavadi for um, joining us again for this conversation that you just heard. Um, these, um, this radio show and these interviews uh, where we for where we meet uh, would not be able to happen and is supported by the Northern Rio Grande National Heritage Area. Um, we really appreciate this um, grant that allows us to do so much um, wonderful community work and to have conversations with um, elders like Juanita. So thank you again for listening, everyone, and um, thank you, Northern Rio Grande National Heritage Area.